Section 7 of Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph by Francis Sheridan. Volume 1 continued. Grimston Hall, August the 8th. We arrived here yesterday and met a most friendly reception from the lady of this mansion, but before I say any more of her, I will hasten to a more interesting subject. I have got Mr. Falkland's letter to my mother. She has just put it into my hands, and while she walks in the garden with Lady Grimston, I will make haste to transcribe it. Thus it is. To Dorothy from Falkland. Madam, I submit to the sentence you have passed on me. I am miserable, but do not presume to expostulate. I purpose leaving England directly, but would wish, if possible, a little to mitigate the severity of my lot, to convince you that the unhappy rejected man who aspired to the honour of being your son-in-law is not quite such a criminal as he now appears to you. To Sir George's friendship I know I am much indebted for endeavouring to vindicate me. It was not in his power, it was not in my own, for you saw all which I, in unreserved freedom, wrote to him on the subject of my acquaintance with Miss B. I have but one resource left, perhaps, madam, you will think it a strange one. To the lady herself I must appeal. She will do me justice, and I am sure will be ready to acknowledge that I am no betrayer of innocence, no breaker of promises that I was surprised into the commission of a fault for which I have paid so dear a price. Her testimony, madam, may perhaps have some weight with you, though I propose nothing more from it than that you may think of me with less detestation. You have banished me from your presence. I am a voluntary exile from my country and from my friends. I submit to the chastisement and would do anything to expiate my offence against you and Miss Biddulph. There is but one command which you can possibly lay on me, to which I would not pay a perfect and ready obedience, but that act perhaps is the only one which would make me appear worthy of your esteem. The lady whom it has been my ill fate to render unhappy, and by whom I am made unutterably so, will ere long come to a house at Putney, which I have taken on purpose for her. I have placed in it my housekeeper, a grave, worthy woman, under whose care she will be safe, and attended with that secrecy and tenderness which her condition requires. I have written to her a faithful account of everything relative to my hoped-for alliance with your family, and the occasion of the treaties being broken off. As she must by this means know that your ladyship is acquainted with her story, I have told her that perhaps you might, from the interest you took in her misfortune, be induced to see her in her retirement. Let me therefore conjure you, madam, by that pious seal which governs all your actions, and by the love you bear that daughter so deservedly dear to you, to take compassion on this young lady. She has no friends nor any acquaintance in this part of the kingdom. Her situation will require the comfort of society, and perhaps the advice of wisdom. It will be an act worthy of your humanity to show some countenance to her. 
I think she will be in very good hands with the honest woman who waits her coming, but if anything should happen otherwise than well, it would make me doubly wretched. To one who has no resources of contentment in her own bosom, solitude cannot be a friend. This, I fear, may be the lady's case, and this makes me with the more earnestness urge my request to you. Forgive me, madam, for the liberty I take with you, a liberty which, though I confess it needs an apology, yet is it at the same time a proof of the confidence I have in you, which I hope will not affront either your candour or your virtue. If you will condescend to grant this request, I shall obtain the two wishes at present most material to my peace. The one to secure to the lady a compassionate friend, already inclined to espouse her cause. The other to put it in your power to be satisfied from the lady's own mouth of the truth of what I have asserted. I trust to her generosity to deal openly on this occasion. I wish you and Miss Biddulph every blessing that heaven can bestow, and am with great respect, madam, your ladyship's most obedient humble servant, Orlando Falkland. Postscript. The lady will go by the name of Mrs. Jeffreys. You will pardon me for not having mentioned her real name. I never yet told it even to Sir George, but I presume she will make no secret of it to you if you honour her with a visit. Poor Orlando! Unhappy Miss B! I could name a third person that is not happy either. What a pity it is that so many good qualities should be blotted by imperfections! How tender is his compassion for this poor girl! How ingenuous his conduct! But still he flies from her. I fear she can never hope to recover him. There is but one thing, he says, which he would not do, the only act, perhaps, by which he could make himself appear worthy of my mother's esteem. The meaning of this but too plainly shows him determined against marrying Miss B. I don't know anything else which would reconcile my mother to him. I make no doubt of her complying with Mr. Falkland's request in seeing the lady. She is very compassionate, particularly to her own sex. What a strange resource indeed is this of Mr. Falkland's to appeal to the lady herself? What am I to judge from it but that the unfortunate victim, ignorant of the treachery that was practised against her by her wicked aunt, and that her destroyer paid a price for her dishonour, exculpates him from the worst part of the guilt, and perhaps, poor easy creature, blames her own weakness only for the error which a concealed train of cunning and perfidy might have led her into. But even supposing Miss B were generous and candid enough, and great indeed must be her candour and generosity, to justify this guilty man, what would it avail? Did not my mother tell me she conceived a sort of horror at the bare idea of a union between Mr. Falkland and me? This arises from the strong impression made on her by the unlucky event which blasted her own early love. Strong and early prejudices are almost insurmountable. My mother's piety, genuine and rational as it is, 
is notwithstanding a little tinctured with superstition. It was the error of her education, and her good sense has not been able to surmount it, so that I know the universe would not induce her to change her resolution in regard to Mr. Falkland. She thinks he ought to marry Miss B, and she will ever think so. I wish he would, for I am sure he can never be mine. The bell rings for breakfast. I must run down. My mother came up to dress just now and stepped into my room. I returned her the letter, and she asked me what I thought of Mr. Falkland's request. Madam, you are a better judge of the propriety of it than I am. I shall have no objection to seeing the unhappy lady, said she, since it seems he has apprised her of my knowledge of her affairs. I am glad he has the grace to show even so much compassion for her. Perhaps it may be the beginning of repentance, and time may work a thorough reformation in him, if God spares him his life and his senses. You see which way my good mother's thoughts tended. I did not, she added, intend to return to London again, but this occasion, I think, calls upon me and I believe I shall go for a while, in order to see and comfort this poor young creature. She cannot yet be near lying in, and I suppose she will not come to the house Mr. Falkland speaks of, till she can no longer remain undiscovered at home, so that a month or two hence will be full soon enough for me to think of going to town. I saw my mother rested her compliance with Mr. Falkland's request merely on one point, that of compassion to the girl. As for the other motive, said she, the hearing him justified from the lady's own mouth, I am not such a novice in those matters, but that I know, when a deluding man has once got an ascendancy over a young creature, he can coax her into anything too much truth I doubt there is in this observation of my mother's. But it is time to say something of Lady Grimston. My Cecilia has never seen her, though I believe she has often heard my mother speak of her. They are nearly of an age, and much of the same cast of thinking, though with this difference, that Lady Grimston is extravagantly rigid in her notions and precise in her manner. She has been a widow for many years, and lives upon a large jointure at Grimston Hall, with as much regularity and solemnity as you would see in a monastery. Her servants are all antediluvians. I believe her coach-horses are fifty years of age, and the very house-dog is as bold as a badger. She herself, who in her youth never could have been handsome, renders herself still a more unpleasing figure by the oddity of her dress. You would take her for a lady of Charles I's court at least. She's always dressed out. I believe she sleeps in her clothes, for she comes down ruffled and towered and flounced and farthingaled even to breakfast. My mother has a very high opinion of her and says she knows more of the world than any one of her acquaintance. It may be so, but it must be of the old world, for Lady Grimston has not been ten miles from her seat these thirty years. 
"'Tis nine years since my mother and she met before, "'and there was a world of compliments paid between them, "'though I'm sure they were sincerely glad to see each other, "'for they seemed to be very fond. "'They were companions in youth, "'that season wherein the most durable friendships are contracted. "'I believe her really a very good woman. "'She is pious and charitable "'and does abundance of good things in her neighbourhood, though I cannot say I think her amiable. There is an austerity about her that keeps me in awe, notwithstanding that she is extremely obliging to me, and told my mother I promised to make a fine woman. Think of such a compliment to one of almost nineteen. My mother and she call one another by their Christian names, and you would smile to hear the two old ladies begging their pardons, lettying and dollying one another. This accounts to me for Lady Grimston's thinking me still a child, for I suppose she considered herself not much past girlhood, though to do her justice she has not a scrap of it in her behaviour. August the 10th. All our motions here are as regular as the clock. The family rise at six, we are summoned to breakfast at eight. At ten, a venerable congregation are assembled to prayers, which an ancient clergyman who is curate of the parish and her ladyship's chaplain gives us daily. Then the old horses are put to the old coach, and my lady, with her guests, if they choose it, take an airing, always going and returning by the same road and driving precisely to the same landmark and no farther. At half an hour after twelve, in a hall large enough to entertain a corporation, we sit down to dinner. My lady has a grace of a quarter of an hour long, and we are waited on by four truly venerable footmen, for she likes state. The afternoon we may dispose of as we please. At least it is a liberty I am indulged in, and I generally spend my time in the garden or my own chamber, till I have notice given me of suppers being on the table, where we are treated with the same ceremonials as at dinner. At ten exactly, the instant the clock strikes the first stroke, my lady rises with great solemnity and wishes us a good night. August the 14th. You cannot expect in such a house as this is, my dear, that I can be furnished with materials to give you much variety. Indeed, these four last days have been so exactly the same in every particular, excepting that the dishes at dinner and supper were changed, that I had resolved to hang up my pen till I quitted Grimston Hall, or at least resign it to Patty and let her plod on and tell you how the wind blew such a day, what sort of a mantua Lady Grimston had on such a day, though, by the way, it is always the same, always ash-coloured tissue, what the great dog barked at at such an hour, and what the old parrot said at such a time. The house and the garden I have exhausted my descriptive faculties on already, though they are neither of them worth describing and I was beginning to despair of matter to furnish out a quarter of an hour's entertainment, when the scene began to brighten a little this auspicious day by the arrival of a coach full of visitors. 
These were a venerable dean, who is the minister of our parish, his lady and daughter, and a Mr. Arnold, a gentleman who is a distant relation of Lady Grimston's. He has a house in this neighbourhood, and has just come to an estate by the death of his elder brother. This visit has given me hopes that I may, now and then, have a chance for seeing a human face besides the antiques of the family and those who are depicted on the arras. Though not to disparage the people, they were all agreeable enough in their different ways. The old dean is good-humoured and polite. I mean the true politeness, that of the heart, which dictates the most obliging things in so frank a manner that they have not the least appearance of flattery. Being very near-sighted, he put on a pair of spectacles to look at me, and turning to Mr. Arnold, with a vivacity that would have become five-and-twenty, he repeated, with an air and a face, and a shape, and a grace, etc. The young man smiled his assent, and my mother looked so delighted that the good-natured dean's compliment pleased me for her sake. Lady Grimston, who is passionately fond of music, has a very pretty organ in one of her chambers. Mr. Arnold was requested to give us a lesson on it, which he very readily obliged us with. He plays ravishingly. The creature made me envious. He touched it so admirably. I had taken a sort of dislike to him when he first came in. I cannot tell you why or wherefore. But this accomplishment has reconciled me to him so that I'm half in love with him. I hope we shall see him often. He is really excellent on this instrument, and you know how fond I am of music. August the 15th. This packet is already so large that I am sure it will frighten you. I will therefore send it off before I increase it, especially as I am now so much in the humdrum way that I ought out of policy to make a break in my narrative in order to encourage you to read it. Positively, if things do not mend, and that considerably too, Patty shall keep the journal, for I find myself already disposed to sleep over it. End of section 7